I, I personally think that the, the intentional repetition of praise him, hallelujah, uh, four or five times, I think it's four times, and it leads us into the, the uh, I'll call it the refrain because I don't know the right terminology, but it leads us right back into the words that we've already sung with a new freshness and a, a new intensity. Uh, Christian music is uh, a blessing, and uh, it, is, it is a wonderful thing. And so um, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for how God has used it in my life. I do uh, dwell on my relationship with Christ on a regular basis. And so much of my life has been impacted by music and by the preaching of God's Word. Uh, but I'm actually going to start today in a little different mindset. I'm going to actually start with a mindset of offering you an invitation. Um, oftentimes that, that comes at the end of the, of the service, and I get that. It's, it's traditional that, that we would engage in God's Word, and, and we hear it. Uh, we're challenged by it. We're exhorted. We're, we're encouraged. We're, we're, we're called on the carpet, and, you know, and then we, alter, uh, we offer an altar call, and people walk down the aisle, and they respond, and, and I'm just not good at that. And I'll tell you why. I've been in circumstances where I believed the person who had just preached became manipulative. And this is my baggage. I'm just sharing you my baggage, right? I think that there's there's an element where the influence that the person behind this pulpit exerts when they're preaching God's Word is, is to call people to a a response to the word, but so often I see it done where it's a response to the preaching, to the person. And I don't ever want to be accused of spiritually manipulating anyone. But I am passionate about God's people responding to God's word. And so can I beg with you and plead with you before we even get into it, can we have a word of prayer and offer an opportunity for you, invite you, an, an invitation to allow God's Word to impact you in a way that maybe you don't see, maybe that you're not expecting. Maybe this will be just an exercise in, in normalcy for you, but it, it should not be, and I pray it will not be. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you for your Word that we're about to look into. It is going to challenge us. It's going to encourage us. But Father, if we sit here and we just go through the motions week after week and fail to come to the preaching of your word with a, with a new freshness, kind of like what I just described with that song, if we fail to come and failing to remember that our Redeemer lives and, and what it costs for our redemption, Father, I pray that you would just do your work in the heart of your people this morning. And I do mean that, Father. Do your work in the heart of every Christian in this room. Encourage them. Challenge them. To be who you have called them to be to do what you've called them to do as we seek to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, Father, we know that we can only do it through your power. And we only know what to do through your word. So, Father, I pray that you do your work in the heart 
of believers today. Lord, I pray that you do your work in the heart of unbelievers. There's plenty of unbelief in the text that we're going to look at today. There's plenty of opportunity for someone who scoffs at the name of Jesus to to consider the reality that they need him for forgiveness of sins. So, Father, as we go into this text, we invite you to change our hearts as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's much that's going to be said today, and uh, I'm going to spend a bit of time just drawing you into the context here in just a moment. But what I realized after I finished the early service is that I failed to mention two things, so I'm going to mention them right off the bat so I don't forget them this time because I don't have it in my notes or on a slide. And I meant to put them on a slide. I just forgot. But we continually talk about these principles we value, and there's two that are becoming very prominent in my mind and heart today. And the first one is the... the the, the, the principle of flexibility, which says that humility is shown by openness to others. I want us all to be flexible. I want us all to, to demonstrate humility and openness to others. But as we engage in the text today, I want you to understand that humility is humility to other believers, primarily, in the sense of doctrine. We we certainly should love one another and we should be flexible in our interactions with one another and and listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ and and demonstrate a humility rather than some sort of uh, false bravado or false declaration that we've arrived and we can't wait for you to arrive with us, right? We'll we'll wait for you as you catch up. That's, That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about genuine humility is shown when you are open to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we can be humble to unbelievers as well, just not in the area of doctrine. The main thing must always be the main thing. And and next week, uh, well, actually not next week, but in the the coming weeks when we get into some of our grace and truth discussions, we're going to talk about theological triage. And some of you are familiar with that term. Some of you are not familiar with the term. And we're going to talk about that term. But let me just emphasize to you this morning that... The most important things must always be the most important things. And the most important things for us as believers are those things that are, ma- that are essential for our salvation, for our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and, and, uh, and what he has done on our behalf. We can never deviate from the centrality of the gospel. So as we talk about today, and we're talking about different terminologies I'm going to use, please don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not asking you to be flexible with your doctrine. That's called compromise. I'm asking you to be flexible with, your, with one another. Humility is shown in openness to others. So that's the first principle that I thought uh, really needs to come on the forefront. The other one is doctrinal depth. We're going to talk about doctrine today. And doctrine often puts people to sleep, but this doctrine should not. This doctrine should be the core of what gets you up every day. Doctrinal depth says that passion for God pulls us deeper into His Word. We have been gifted. We have been graced with the revelation of God to man. We're told we are, we are given the black and white words that are given here. And then we are told in John 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He wasn't recognized for who He was by those He came to save. 
There are others that recognized him, and, and we still celebrate him today. We, we come here every week to celebrate the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. But doctrinal depth says that a passion for God pulls us deeper into the Word, and that means doctrine should, we should be passionate about our doctrine. And so let's get into some doctrine today. But before we do, let me just remind us of the world we live in. I want you to see your life as I go through these slides. Before we even get to the text, I'm asking you, um, please let me draw you into the text. Let me draw you in. Let me set you up. Let me influence you so that when the Word of God comes on the screen, you can look at it and say, that's me. And I need to be challenged in this area, and I need to be encouraged in this area, but that's me. I need the Word of God. And so as a way of drawing us in, let me just start off by pointing out that we have a problem. And I'm not talking about Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. I'm talking about a much, much bigger problem. What is the problem? It's the world we live in. We're going to see that we have a problem. We live in a world, and it's full of two things that we're going to talk about today. It's full of much else, but it's full of two things. And I want to, it's first, first of all, it's full of spiritual distractions. Those things that get our attention away from what's most important. And then it's also full of spiritual deceptions. We live in a world that is, that is uh, geared to draw people away from the personal work of Jesus Christ, not to it. And so this is kind of like the context of everything we're going to be talking about today. I believe what's true in John's day is true in our day. This was true in John's day. And this is true in ours. So let's just look at them a little bit more uh, uh, detailed. Uh, spiritual distractions. First of all, they're innumerable. Think about all the things that can draw your, your attention away from the things of God. You came here this morning just for fun. How many of you checked your weather app before you left for the road? How many of you checked it five times? Okay, right? I was checking it all morning. What's going to go on? Hey, is, is the is this ice and snow, is it going to impact the way we are, the, our, our worship today? You know, should I cancel services because of the icy roads? And, and that go, thought goes through my mind, right? It's not because I'm a Southerner. It's because I don't want anybody dying on their way to church, all right? Although to be absent from the body is the presence of the Lord. You know, we can rejoice in that. But when we think about spiritual distractions, there's all kinds of things. Did you have an, or don't raise your hand on this one. Did you have an argument before coming in here? Did you disobey? Did you lie to your parents before you came here, right? What's going on in your life that's distracting you from the most important thing? I came up with a list, and what I'm going to do at the end of this list is, is ask you to share your thoughts about your friend's distractions, okay? All right? Innumerable in the sense of entertainment. I put this as number one because this is mine. I love entertainment. I love movies. I love TV shows. I love stories. I love, I love cartoons. I love, you name it. I love entertainment. There's nothing sinful about entertainment except when it distracts me from what I'm supposed to be focused on. I put my pet peeve. Pet peeve is down towards the bottom, but my pet peeve is actually politics. Just so you know, I've said it before. I'll say it many more times. My pet peeve is Christians who are more identified by their political party than by their Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, we live in a world that is full of spiritual distractions. 
And whether you're a disciple of CNN or a disciple of Fox News uh, or any of the other uh, outlets there that are, are propagating their perspective, I'm asking you this. They are, they are influencing you in the ways of the world. And, and we're going to be challenged. Be careful with that. How about hobbies? You know, those things that, you know what, well, I can't go to church today because I've got something in the, in the shop that's being, you know, the glue's got to set and I've got to get there, to, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, what about employment? You know what, I've got I to put food on the table and that means, now granted, if your job as a nurse, as a doctor, as a hotel employee, as uh, any number of things, that those things have to happen on Sundays as well as every day of the week. If that keeps you from worship, so then you have to figure that out, right? That's part of God's calling in your life. But there are plenty of opportunities in our employment for us to put employment before the things of God. I don't have time for prayer and reading God's Word. I've got, I've got to be at the office at such such a time. I can't, I, I can't you know, uh, do anything because I'm, I'm too busy working, right? I'm just not, I, listen, we're, we have the, all the same amount of time in a week, right? We know all that. Set aside time to, to engage in your relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Uh, relationships. I think of this one, I, of all ages, by the way, but I, I think this is the, you know, the younger folks in the room who are smitten, right? They're, they're, you know, relationships is a big deal. It's a distraction. I'd rather put my time and energy in the relationship than my time and energy with my relationship with God. My relationship with uh, a romance versus the Lord. These are all, again, these are not sin in and of themselves, but they can move us in a direction that is certainly sinful. I'll skip pet peeves. That's basically just saying you talk more about what you're upset about than what you're excited for, right? Uh, Religion. That's one of those distractions. You know, people will talk about religion and never talk about Jesus. They'll talk about end times but never get to the the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They'll they'll talk about uh, aspects of religion. They'll talk about versions. They'll talk about uh, uh, specific passages like Mark 16. And, they, and they'll spend all their time and energy in the, and they'll know everything about that. But in their study, they have become too narrow in their focus. And they're not talking about the most important things. And then there is sin. Sin is certainly a distraction. There's plenty of it out there. You have yours. I have mine. I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying it's a huge deal, but I'm not going to spend any time on it. What, what are some of the other distractions? And one was shared. I want to see if it was shared, if it's shared this time. What are some other distractions that, uh, that go on in the, to, to draw us away from the most important things? Social media. That's a new one. So that's a good one. Yeah, social media. Uh, when I say I don't do Facebook, that's my, that's my purpose because it will distract me for hours and hours, and I know me. I, I will just spend too much time on it. And, and uh, so I, I let Christine do that because she's disciplined in it and she fills me in on what's going on in your lives, just so you know. All right. Uh, anything else? All right, I'll just tell, share the one that was from the first service. Pain and suffering. I thought that was great. Listen, there are those who go through chronic pain all the time. I know of three people off the top of my head that are associated with this ministry that, that uh, are in constant pain, and yet they love the Lord, right? 
And, and, but it's, it, that's, that's a hard one, right? That's, it, but it, is a, it can be a distraction. But there are those that would get caught up into it. And, and, and I'm not talking about these folks. I'm talking about we, we can allow it to become bigger than it ought to be. But certainly pain and suffering is, is a big thing, and it can distract us. But what's interesting about spiritual distractions is they're not only innumerable. In other words, you have yours and I have mine, and, and I, I'm sure I didn't list yours, uh, everyone's. But the, the neat thing about spiritual distractions is they are identifiable. There's no problem finding out what they are. You want to know what is causing, uh, uh, what is the spiritual distraction in your life? Ask yourself this question. What keeps you from growing in your Christian faith? And whatever just came to your mind may be the top of the iceberg that you might need to look at and then maybe meditate on this a little bit more and see. Spiritual distractions are a real thing. And they are, they are detrimental to our growth in the Lord. Let's talk about spiritual deception. Now, this is more in line with what John is doing in his gospel. He's talking to the, the, the recipients of his letter, and he's saying that, hey, listen, there are false prophets among you. They, are, they have the spirit of the Antichrist. He's going to say it again. We already heard it in chapter 2. We're gonna, he's going to say it again today. But we, we know that spiritual deception is in our world, too. And what's amazing about spiritual deception is that it has a singular focus. Every spiritual deception is is aimed at one thing. Attacks on one's potential faith in Jesus Christ or their actual faith in Jesus Christ. But I think it's more the potential. In other words... The world. We live in this world. He, John uses the term world so many times in six verses that we ought to understand he's talking about the world he lived in, but he's talking about the world we live in too because it's the world that is under uh, the influence of a very influential person, right? But here we say spiritual deception. It's singular focused. It's attack. It's atta- it attacks on one's potential faith in Jesus Christ. All spiritual deception whether it be Eastern religions, whether it be Christian cults, whether it be uh, agnosticism, whether it be uh, uh, anything, anything that would somehow not point someone in the direction of Jesus Christ, it's spiritual deception. Spiritual deception has a significant impact. And I just want to address two. The first one is spiritual deception Will, sp- uh, will lead people to spend eternity in hell. I know people. I love people who are spiritually deceived and are going to spend eternity in hell. Do you know some of those people? Are you burdened for their salvation? They need us to be Christians who are abiding in Christ and sharing the good news with them. We just, we need to do it, folks. It can't be somebody else. People will spend eternity in hell because of the spiritual deception that exists in this world. But Christians will be ineffective witnesses to the gospel because of that very spiritual deception. There will be those who, who, who are deceived in some capacity 
not from faith. They already have faith in Christ, legitimate faith in Christ, but, but they have been sold a bill of goods somewhere, and they have ceased to mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. They have ceased to mature in their understanding of his word. And as a result, they will, live in, they will be ineffective witnesses for the gospel. Is that you? I came to faith in Christ. This, this is me speaking on behalf of, of, a, of a potential person out there. This is not me. This is some other person. Oh, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, got, I prayed that prayer when I was five, and I've been good ever since. And yet their life shows no spiritual fruit. Or they got saved, and they were on fire, and then they just kind of lapsed into a passive Christianity, which our Christianity is never supposed to be passive. Spiritual uh, distractions and spiritual deceptions. All right? So we have a problem. It's real. It's out there. It's in our world. But why do we have a problem? Why do we have this problem? Well, it's because we have an adversary. And John's already talked about him. He's going to talk about him again. Satan is behind every distraction and every deception going on spiritually. Every single one. He's not necessarily, it's, it's, this is his world. He's the prince of power of the air. He is the one that, that has been given uh, the ability to influence this world. We live in a fallen world and he heads it up. Under the sovereignty of God, he heads it up and he's responsible. He has many disguises and many disciples. So as we talk about this, I want you to understand, the disguises could be Eastern religions. It could be like all those things I mentioned before. Anything that is contrary to, to biblical Christianity is a disguise. It's, it's promising something it can never deliver. I watch videos of Oprah. I've, I've read articles uh, about uh, different groups of people, and I, I'm a subject matter expert on a few of the cults that are act, out there. When I say that, I'm not kidding. I know certain things about certain groups that it just brings me to tears because I have loved ones who have fallen into the deception. And what's, what's amazing is the adversary, our adversary, the devil, right? He has many disciples. There's, there are people going all through our world proclaiming the tree is God. The ocean is God. God is in us. God is everywhere. And they don't mean God is everywhere in the sense of his, his um, omnipresence. They mean he's in everything. I'm God. You're God. Ooh, let's hug. That, that is where the adversary is so sneaky and subtle. Most people proclaim the adversary, or a picture of the adversary with horns and a tail, and yet he can come as an angel of light. And he can proclaim the sonship of Jesus. But he will never, ever be true to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He will deceive like nobody's business. So how are Christians able to live victorious in such a world? How are we called to live victorious? Well, there's, there's uh, a main, main idea here, and the big idea is this. Right? This, sounds, this is Christianity 101, but I, I'm telling you, this is, this is the truth. A Christian's life must be grounded on biblical truth. That's doctrinal depth right there right? How are we to live victoriously in a world that is, that is so influenced by deception and distraction? 
we need to be living a life that's grounded on biblical truth. So our Christian life must be grounded on biblical truth. John, as we get into the text, he, we, it's broken down into two sections in my mind. Verses 1 through 3, we see that John exhorts us with a spiritual practice. That spiritual practice is called examination. All right? We're supposed to examine. We're supposed to be actively examining. And then in 4 through 6, John encourages us with a spiritual reality. And that is that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So I've kind of already given you the text because so much of this is not new. And it's not new to, the, to John, and it's not new to his uh, recipients of his letter. He's already told them this, but now they are living it. And he's saying, he's saying, oh, beloved, oh, little children, take notice of what's going on. So let's look at uh, this uh, 4 through 6. And I actually thought I took those slides out, and I hope I didn't delete the wrong ones, and I may have done just that. So we've already read this portion of Scripture. So uh, that really scares me because I deleted some slides. So have your Bibles open because I'm pretty sure there was a biblical text. So uh, I was telling Aaron that that, uh, something was wrong with... uh, the program, and I realized it might be user error. Okay, so John exhorts us with a spiritual practice of verses one through three, and this is the practice. Spiritual examination will protect you and me from spiritual compromise. We are so, uh, talking about the religious uh, distractions that are out there, some people see spiritual compromise around every corner. They think if we, you know, if we do this, it's, it's the slippery slope to, to liberalism. If we do this, it's spiritual compromise. Listen, I am not promoting spiritual compromise. I think I've already established that. We must be firm in our doctrine. But we are required by John and by God and by the power of the Spirit to, to, to examine what we are to examine. What are we supposed to examine? He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What is John saying? He's saying, listen, believers, he's talking about the beloved. He's talking to genuine Christians. Do not believe every spirit. In other words, there's a danger for us to be non-discerning, non-discriminatory people who just let everything kind of, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That's a lie of the world, and if we're not careful, we will adopt it into our lives, and we will become ineffective witnesses of Jesus Christ. We, we cannot believe every spirit. Why? Because we're told there are two types of spirits. There are the spirit, there's the Spirit of God, and there's the Spirit of the world. And it's using the plural in, in, the, in the test of spirits, but notice, do not believe every spirit. There's many of them. Test them. That word test is the idea of examine. It's an examination. What's fascinating, it's also the root of it is also where you get the word Nike from, you know? So we can just talk about the swoosh, right? But swoosh the spirits. No, that's not, doesn't have quite the effect. Have, have the, uh, well, actually, that's not the, but test the spirits, whether they are gone. Hey, you know what? Back up. That's the second point. That is not Nike. Nike is the second point. That's verse 4. Sorry. Wow. See, I get rolling along, and then i got to be careful where I'm going. This idea of test is the idea of examination. It is one that is supposed to be constantly being done. This is not something that you do once and say, oh, I'm good. No. 
Do not believe every spirit because they're out there to distract you and deceive you. Test them. Examine them, whether they are of God. All right? So spiritual examination will protect you from spiritual compromise. If you're examining the spirits, you will stay focused on the things of the Lord. And you will be able to overcome the deceptions and the distractions. But let's just talk about the spirits for a minute. How are we supposed to examine spirits? We don't see them. What John is saying, it's kind of like John chapter 1 where he says, uh, talk about Jesus as being the Word, right? He uses the Word to talk about Jesus, even though he doesn't use his name, right? Here we see the word spirits. It's more the idea of those who are influencing others the way, but what's the spirit upon which they are relying upon their influence? Are they replying upon the Spirit of God to influence for God's glory? Or are they relying upon the spirit of this world to influence for spiritual decay. He says, listen, test them, examine them, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here he puts in actual false prophets. We're talking about people. When he's talking about spirits, he's talking about people. Be aware of the people that you have allowed to influence you. Talking about social media, right? It's dominant. Our kids are being influenced by people we don't even know. And I'm not saying ban them from social media. I'm saying let's help them do it responsibly. Uh, I think the teens talked about that just recently, didn't they? All right? I love our teen ministry, all right? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. They're there, and they're seeking the influence. By this you know the Spirit of God. Now here is the, the, uh, the essence of what we are supposed to do. When we are examining, we, are, we need to examine one thing, all right, with many facets. But specifically as John is applying this to them, I will say this one thing is every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Not as easy as you would think. And that's why we have to examine, examine, examine. Because as I stated earlier, there are religious institutions out there that will claim that they believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son. But they don't believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. John is putting forth here a very clear Christological statement that every spirit that confesses that Jesus the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the deliverer, has come in the flesh. What he is saying is that the eternal God has become incarnate in human flesh. Right? That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. God has come in the flesh. There are those who believe today, and you are sharing cubicle space with them. You are uh, maybe family members who will say, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But he, he became the Son. He wasn't eternally the Son. He became the Son. He was something other than the Son to begin with, and then became the Son. This is the God, this is the view of Mormonism. And if my brothers and family members ever watched this, I, I, you know, they would get upset at me, right? Because I, 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 but I believe I know this to be true. They believe 
that Jesus Christ is the physical offspring of the union of God, the Father and Mary. There's no power of the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary in a non-physical way. It was a fully physical, biological means of a heavenly father and an earthly woman. They will not tell you that when you first encounter them, but I'm telling you right now, that is their view of who Jesus Christ is. The physical offspring of God the Father and Mary. Jesus was not God in their view prior to coming into this world, living a, 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 a life and then exalting the Father, right? He became God. There is a statement in Mormonism, and I'm going to move on, but it's a powerful statement, and I need to warn you uh, about this and other cults. But this particular statement should send shivers down your spine. As man is, God once was. In my humanity, as, God, as, as man is, I'm a man, God once was. So before God was ever God, and we're talking now, not only Jesus Christ, but God the Father. As man is, God once was. God was a man before he became God. The second part of that is, as God is, he's God, man may become. That's Mormon theology in a nutshell. And you need to know it. The eternal progression to Godhood is reserved, ladies, only for men. Just so you know. All right? And I don't, I, I'm telling you, I, I say that humorously, but I'll be honest with you. This is what grieves my soul. When I sing about my Redeemer, I know what I've been redeemed from. And I have family members who are caught in deception. And not only my brothers, but their wives and their children and their grandchildren are deceived. And you know people like that too. So when you come to a text like 1 John 4 and it says, examine the spirits, it's not a theological discussion for me. It's at the core of who I am as a human being and as a Christian because I would long for my family members to examine the spirits and understand that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That is the truth. The eternal God, incarnate as a, as a baby, has lived a sinless life. He hung on that cross and he died for the sins of the world because he was sinless. He, he hung there for you and for me and for everyone who has ever been a sinner, which is everybody but Jesus. And, and he hung there and he died and he was buried. And he, you know what? He died. That proved his humanity. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and he's coming again. And, and our Redeemer liveth. And as we talk about this, people don't understand that. Why don't they understand it? Because it says, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. 
Those that are propagating the, the false gospel, those that are propagating deceit, they, are, they, are, they possess the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. John already said this in chapter 2, and he's saying it again because he's saying, this is important. This is part of the most important thing that we need to be doing as a church. We need to make them mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to make them, which draws them out of darkness into life. We need to mature them so that a disciple uh, creates a disciple who's able to create a disciple. This is the way the church works, and this is the way the world works. And they're in opposition to one another. He goes on in verse 4 to encourage us with a spiritual reality. He says very clearly, spiritual victory comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the reception of God's Word. Spiritual victory. This is the victory, by the way, is the Nike word, the the Greek word that, that Nike comes from, all right? Spiritual victory comes through the power of the Spirit and through the reception of God's Word. Where do we see that? Well, we see that uh, we, we ask how are Christians able to live victorious, and this is the part I messed up, right? So this is the part where I missed. So look, at, I can't believe I deleted the wrong verses. Ah, but you know what? I can go back, and I can show them to you up here. So let's get to it. All right, verse 3 and verse 4. Here we go. You are of God, little children. Remember, remember he said in the beginning, beloved, we're talking to believers. Then he says, you are of God, little children. Let's fast forward to verse 6. Verse 6, we are of God. He says, you are of God. And then he includes himself in verse 6, we are of God. All right? So he says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome. You are victorious. You are, that's the Nike word. It's, it's a, you have overcome them. Who? The false prophets. The false teachers. He's encouraging them, and he's saying, listen, you've had them in your midst, but you haven't followed them. You've remained true to the word. You have genuine faith. You are children of God. You are the genuine thing. And you've overcome them. How did you overcome them? He says, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. How are we able to overcome the deceitfulness and the, and the, and the distractions that this world wants to throw at us? We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's given to all believers. He is given to all believers. When we come to faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he says, listen, you are victorious ones. And how did you become victorious? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have God dwelling in you. They have evil influences. They have a fallen angel who will ultimately receive the judgment for his rebellion. Then he says something very interesting, talking about the, the, the false prophets and, and the, those that would follow them. They are of the world. Notice this. They are of the world. They speak as the world. And the world hears them. So we're talking about these false prophets. They go out. They are produced by the ways of the world. They're not produced by God. They're produced by the ways of the world. And therefore, they speak their natural language. It's called worldly language. And I'm not trying to throw profanity in here or whatever. I'm just saying, they, they, we're going to find out. They don't speak God talk because they don't understand it. They don't know it. All they know 
is the deception and deceitfulness and distractions that is going on. And they see the world the way it is, and they say, well, yeah, this is the way it is. So we ought to worship the trees. We ought to worship the oceans. We need to save the planet. You know what? God is everywhere. Which we could say, oh, that's nice they believe God is everywhere. No, God is in you, and he's in me, and he's in this book, and he's in this piece of furniture. He's in the microphone. Uh, he's in an animal. He's in a plant. God is so, we, everywhere you go is God. It's like, that's a false gospel. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world. They have no choice. But notice this. The world hears them. The world is actively engaged. They're on the edge of their seat with what the world is saying because it excites them because that's the nature of our adversary. But he says, we are of God. You know, I said we have a problem. We have an adversary. Uh, I didn't put the slide up there, but we also have an advocate with the Father, right? We are of God. He who knows God hears us. Notice the contrast. The world speaks and hears the world. Those who know God, they hear. They hear the word. The word as it goes forth through the preaching of God's word from a pulpit or in the coffee shop or by the bed of a child or in your private devotions. When the word of God speaks, his people hear. He who is not of God does not hear us. They are spiritually dead and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. They cannot come to a knowledge of the gospel without the word of God. That word of God that saved all of us. Right? Now, when I came to faith, it was the word of God through the mouth of other believers. They challenged, they shared the word, they pointed me to scripture, and it was when I engaged in scripture all by myself that I came to faith, all alone. But there are others who engage in the Word and, and, and God brings people to share the Word and point people to the Word and they come to faith in your presence and in mine. But we have to understand the dilemma these folks are in. They are of the world. They speak the world. They understand the world. They listen to the world. It needs some otherworldly things to come in and speak the truth. Do you have a passion for God? Is it drawing you into his word? Is it motivating you to speak it into the lives of others? Why do we run from the reality that we are all called to evangelize the lost? Why do we all think that it's a missionary thing, it's for somebody else, or I'm just not gifted that way? No. They are in peril of eternity in hell because they can't understand the gospel until we explain it to them. And we can't efficiently uh, explain it to them if we aren't growing and maturing in our faith and understanding how the gospel is for every person in every moment because it's not just the gospel to get saved, it's the gospel to live. And he says, when we know this truth, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Those who do not hear the word are of the world. But those who hear it are of God. Folks, I don't know what this does to you. I know I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my own life. I don't witness enough. I witness when I can, but I'm surrounded by a lot of like saved people. 
It's hard. We talk about this. We, we need to find avenues to get out there in our community and, and, and share the gospel with people, but not just to go out there and leave a track, which is okay if you do that. I'm not, but it's not enough. We are the testimony of Jesus Christ to the world. We are the redeemed. And we are called to speak what we know. To both believers and unbelievers. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I realize that in the passion of trying to influence people, your people, to live differently. That there is the danger of stirring up emotions that will ultimately lead lead to nothing. So, Father, I leave my words at the foot of the cross. And would you do what your work that only you can do in our lives? Can you help us see people the way you see them? Can you help us love people the way you love them? Can you do your work in my life? Father, can you give me compassion for the lost, for the suffering? Can you give me clarity of speech when I seek to speak the words of life? Father, I am encouraged that greater is he that is in me that is in, than he that is in the world. And that, that is so encouraging. But Father, if I stop there, I leave encouraged. Father, help me practice the discipline of examining what's going on all around me. And use me, Father, and use everyone in this room as an instrument to draw people out of darkness into light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.